The Other Side of Darkness is brought to you in part by Tweed's Cafe of North Bend, Washington, the real-world site of the Twin Peaks Double R. Stop by in person at 137 West North Bend Way for a slice of cherry pie and a damn good cup of coffee, and follow Tweed's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Tweed's Cafe. This episode is also brought to you by Unwholesome Peaks, the latest addition to the weird pantheon of meta Twin Peaks Instagram accounts. You can follow Unwholesome Peaks on Instagram at, you guessed it, Unwholesome Peaks. Welcome to The Other Side of Darkness, an episodic Seinfeld parody story that follows Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer on a dark and mysterious journey inspired by the work of David Lynch. The Other Side of Darkness is produced by Sign Peaks. I'm Jesse, also known as Sign Peaks, your host and narrator. This week, I'm sharing a conversation I had recently with Chung Nguyen, the host of the Vietnam-based podcast Musically Speaking. Chung is a big fan of both Seinfeld and Twin Peaks, and he brought me on his podcast to talk about our mutual love for the shows, as well as what motivated me to create Sign Peaks and The Other Side of Darkness. We also get into the music of both shows and what made them so iconic. Stay tuned after the interview for this week's musical guest, Gloom. Now, here's Chung Yen. So I'm here with uh, Jesse Brooks. He's the creator and uh, manager of the Instagram meme account, sign peaks and he is the host of a podcast titled the other side of darkness how are you doing jesse i am doing great uh chuang uh as i said before we started it's uh bright and early not even really bright here yet here where i am in atlanta uh but good evening to you yeah i was gonna ask you to do a david lynch style uh, weather report but since you've <laughs> already done it I would need to tilt my webcam uh, so that it's looking right up at me. And I, 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 need some, I need some big sunglasses. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So I understand it's uh, 630 in the morning for you, but mm-hmm. you've already explained that you're an early bird, which I'm not. So now that we have established that, uh, I would like to remind everyone that today is February the 23rd for me, and I assume it's the same for you. And mm-hmm. I rewatched the pilot episode of Twin Peaks uh, a few days ago, I was going to introduce my brother to it, but he didn't like it. And that day was, uh, at least in the context of the pilot, is the last entry of uh, Laura Palmer's diary. That's right. I want to begin by asking how you, how did you get introduced to uh, the two respective shows that you've uh, somehow mashed together in your fabulous Instagram account, Seinfeld and Twin Peaks? Oh man, that that's a good question. Thank you. So, um, I am uh, a lifelong fan of the show Seinfeld. Um, I was uh, actually born the same day that the second episode aired uh, for the first time on NBC. So, um, May thirty first, nineteen ninety, and um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was destiny. Um, I grew up watching uh, Seinfeld. Didn't really. I mean, I was a kid when it was on, so I wasn't you know five years old watching the contest or anything like that but uh watched a couple episodes live and really got into it in the early 2000s the show was uh syndicated and played on a channel called tbs so every afternoon i would come home from high school and uh sit down and watch like an hour straight um wound up watching 
all 180 episodes eventually uh got some dvds along the way and i mean just stayed a lifelong fan of it twin peaks i didn't get into until i was an adult friends had recommended it to me but i'd never given at the time because you have to like actively seek out uh twin peaks at least you did before it was on netflix um it wasn't one that was played heavily in syndication uh, in its first two seasons. So I got into it in 2017 when the return aired the third season and uh, my coworkers would come in every Monday morning talking about how crazy the last night's episode was. And I had never seen any of the show. So I decided to give it a shot. My wife was pregnant at the time we were expecting our first child. So, um, you know, life had slowed down a lot at home because we were doing a lot of resting. So I had some time on my hands and uh, binged the first two seasons within uh, a few weeks mm-hmm. uh, on Netflix and then uh, sought out the film Firewalk with me, watched that right after and uh, dove straight into The Return. Got a Showtime uh, account specifically to watch The Return. So blew through that and uh, have been a fan ever since. So um, it's been five years now of being obsessed with Twin Peaks, uh, but 31 coming on 32 years for Seinfeld. Awesome. So I recently left uh, Canada. Uh, I, I studied there and I went back to Vietnam and I haven't watched Seinfeld. I, 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 did, I don't grow up watching Seinfeld. I, I've only started watching Seinfeld when they announced that the whole series is coming onto Netflix. Right. But I know Jerry Seinfeld long before watching it because he he uh, wrote and, and uh, provided the voiceover in this one movie. B movie. Yep. That one movie where... It says that bees cannot fly or something. Yeah. But I, I started watching Twin Peaks uh, maybe three or four years ago. And I binged the whole, the first and the second season and then the return and then the movie. And mm-hmm. for those who are not in the know, uh, can you describe what that show is? Oh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> uh, because it's a very, it. Yeah, yeah, it's a very um, surreal show. Uh, David Lynch is, I think, definitely follows in the tradition of surrealism and absurdism. Um, It's on the surface level, it's a murder mystery. The beginning, you know, the show starts out, uh, a high school student is found dead in, you know, a small town in Washington. It is tied to a couple, like it's tied to a recent murder and another missing girl. So the FBI is called in to investigate, uh, enter special agent Dale Cooper, one of the greatest characters in all of TV history, in my opinion. Um, and it follows for the first season and a half, the FBI trying to figure out who killed this girl and navigate like this underground world of, uh, drug smuggling and all this stuff, but beyond below the surface, it's uh, very much supernatural, abstract, existential kind of horror because there's all this spiritual stuff going on um, with these, this uh, parallel world called the black lodge, um, these evil spirits that inhabit it, that, interact with you know our world in various ways there's a lot of mysticism and mythology involved in the show um it, i mean it was something that like did not happen on tv at the time so that's kind of what that show is about uh you know following dale cooper trying to crack the case and um being sucked up into this weird mystery world uh in the process there we go I've been a fan of uh, David Lynch, who was one of the co-creators uh, for mm-hmm. a long time before starting Twin Peaks. The first film I watched from him is uh, Eraserhead. Mm, me too. Which I believe he did his own music. Yes. Yeah. He did his own music and sound design for that. Uh, that was his first uh, first feature length project. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, uh, special agent Dale Cooper, the role is played by Kyle McLaughlin, which uh, the two first collaborated in the film Blue Velvet, yep. where a new musical composer is introduced, Angelo Badalametti. Yes. Oh, I love, uh, I love him. Yeah, he's incredible. So what I discovered in Twin Peaks, as well as a recurring theme in uh, Lynch's films, um, I think the order in which I watched it before finally getting into Twin Peaks was uh, Eraserhead, uh, Mulholland Drive, and Blue Velvet, and then the show. So the recurring theme in Lynch's, uh, I guess, artistic creations is that there's the very much pristine surface almost utopian and then there's the underworld which is messy and troubled and uh, yucky and evil in a way i'm reminded of this shot as the opening of blue velvet where it yes. shows this suburban garden and then the camera pans down to reveal this like bug infested underground and you know it basically opens the movie nicely yeah oh i love it <laughs> so um i mean of course uh, more people know of seinfeld more than than Twin Peaks. I mean, I would describe it as a show about nothing, mm-hmm. but uh, this may come as a surprise to you, but not many Vietnamese people know about Seinfeld. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew it was syndicated all around the world. I wasn't sure uh, the extent to which it was popular in other countries. Mm-hmm. How would you rank Seinfeld in the, in the, I guess, the rankings of sitcoms you've watched? Sitcoms, it's number one for me, um, simply oh. because of certain methods of storytelling that it kind of pioneered in in television taboos that it broke um ways that it innovated uh, there's definitely a post seinfeld world in terms of american television um things that you can talk about on tv that you could not talk about in the 80s um because they were intentional about breaking barriers in, in some ways and you know it wasn't i'm by no means like a progressive break you know special topics mm-hmm. kind of show but it, it just it made things like common to talk about uh that you just wouldn't talk about on tv before and the quality of writing uh on that show i think Mm -hmm. surpassed everything around it at the time and um has inspired so many of the great shows uh since in terms of uh fantastic comedies like um i don't know if it's always sunny in philadelphia is popular oh yeah uh well it isn't but i know of it yeah yeah, it's it's one of those shows. I mean, it, it's probably got a, a kind of a distinctly American sense of humor, especially because it's so heavily based in the city of Philadelphia. I've never been there, but uh, that show definitely owes a lot to the writers of Seinfeld um, and a lot of the the comedy that's come out of HBO, not just Larry David, but um, the show Veep as well about uh, the vice president played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Elaine. Yep. Yep. The great Elaine. And um, I, I just I think it was so influential in everything. Thing that has come since to me it's number one and it's just got a soft place in my heart just for sentimental reasons too i think i've heard jerry uh he said that what's uh distinctively new about seinfeld is not the stand-up routine that he did before you know the show begins or the fact that it's about the everyday minutia of life but what's new what he thought it was new was the fact that there are certain stories and situations and they do not come to a a conclusion not even a fruitful conclusion they the episode just ends and yeah uh, what i like about mr seinfeld is that he he aims to be funny and only funny he i think it was larry david who coined the term uh was it no hugs no moral uh no hugging no learning yes right yeah but the same concept mm-hmm. yeah they, they weren't aiming to solve problems or give you warm and 
warm and snuggly feelings at the end of each episode. Definitely not. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I prefer the, the show Curb Your Enthusiasm to Seinfeld, mm-hmm. mainly because I, you know, I, I relate a bit too unhealthily to Larry David and his situation. <laughs> sure. And as I watch uh, the the show Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I know who what Larry David looks like, I would play this little games with myself where I go back to the Seinfeld episodes and I would discover the uncredited Larry David cameos. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there were a lot of them. Some of them were just voice, like he would just yeah. you know contribute his voice to certain scenes. But he also appeared as uh, Frank Costanza's lawyer. Um, yeah, the man with a cape. Yes, the man with the cape. Uh, the bodega cashier um that takes george's money there are there were a couple of others where he actually appears on screen oh and my favorite is um in the fake movie uh flaming globes of sigmund that jerry is watching yes. when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's like screaming to the sky it's a fire yeah flaming globes <laughs> so about the connection between twin peaks and jerry seinfeld which uh i would like to ask you how you managed to find some sort of common ground between the two shows. Some of the obvious characteristics stands out. Um, there are these two actresses, uh, Warren Frost and Grace Zabriskie. Yes. They yeah. played Susan's parents, uh, George's fiance's parents in Seinfeld. And the two of them played, I guess it was uh, Donna's father and Laura's mother in yep. the Twin Peaks show. And I know that the actress, uh, Brenda Strong, who played the the brawless wonder yes sue and maliski in some episodes of twin peaks and i know that jerry seinfeld liked uh, transcendental meditation which is what yep then popularized but what connections do you make between the two shows well um they the connections are just based on the caliber of the writing for sure they were both uh i think at the top of their genres on tv in the 90s have both had a sort of a cult following in the years since and uh, are just smart shows. They're smart shows that like take their stories seriously and, but not too seriously, you know, they're not afraid to kind of have fun and make fun of their characters a little bit um, and do some stuff like that. But they put the work in, like they didn't really phone it in at all. So that was kind of, that's why they work so well together. Um, I, I just started putting them together because that's what people did in the internet groups that I was in at the time. They would just mash shows together to make silly memes. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. So I tried it with Seinfeld and Twin Peaks. It worked well. I made an Instagram page and I mean, it took like a couple of years, but it built a following. And, you know, it's, it's you mentioned Grace Zabriskie, Warren Frost and Brenda Strong. Um, there are actually 13 total actors uh, that appeared on both shows. Oh, wow. if you count the movie, if you count Firewalk with me and uh, oh gosh, some of the others, of course, Brenda Strong, Molly Shannon, uh, who was oh, on Saturday right. Night Live, um, appeared in one or two episodes of Twin Peaks. I think she was the social worker that um, works with Lucy and Andy. It has something to do with Lucy's baby uh, when Lucy's sister comes to town. It's from season two. I haven't seen those episodes in a long time. The actor that plays Mr. Pitt, Elaine's boss on Seinfeld, oh, was the right. insurance, I, I want to say like the insurance salesman that uh, sells Shelly and Bobby the wheelchair when Leo is in a coma yeah. on Twin Peaks. Um, so there's a lot of like random one-off appearances yeah. uh, by these actors. And I think that's just because they were successful character actors in Hollywood at the time. So they were getting a lot of work on TV. Um, but that's uh, that's one of the fun connections for me is spotting all the actors that appeared in those shows. Mm-hmm. I think the um, Twin Peaks, the return uh, would be my favorite movie like it's one of my favorite it's it's definitely my favorite 18 hour movie <laughs> me <laughs> too yeah i've i've watched the show and i i mean i've deliberately taken 
leave of it just for like a couple of months so that I could be sort of reintroduced to it. Unlike uh, for some fans, 25 or so years. Mm-hmm. And I rewatch it and I thought, my God, he, he really pushed the envelope on that one. Oh, yeah. Everything is just so intriguing. And, and you know, you thought that the mystery has been solved when, uh, you know, they finally found out who Laura Palmer's killer is, but they just keep peeling and peeling the layers. And I guess I should issue a spoiler warning here, but my favorite aspect of that show is Dale Cooper or no, Kyle McLaughlin playing Dougie. Yeah. And he's such a character. Oh he's my gosh. It was such a wild experience. I, you know, I've talked to so many people that, I mean, you, you don't know what to expect when you start season three of Twin Peaks. Um, and it's nothing like the first two seasons uh, other than it contains the same characters and it follows the same in the same world. I mean, Dougie Jones, that was completely out of left field to spend so much time with that very strange character. I mean, both <laughs> him and Mr. C, yeah. you know, uh, Cooper's doppelganger come to life. Um, the evil Dale. Oh, that was such a treat. I mean, it was challenging uh, watching at times. I almost felt like David Lynch was like trying to see how far he could get you to stay engaged with it. Um, because sometimes it was, I mean, especially like there's a scene where there's just someone sweeping the floor at the bar for like three minutes straight and music playing in the background. And that's all it was. Nothing else happened in that shot. And it was very experimental. Uh, I think it totally paid off, but yeah, yeah. Dougie Jones was a, a crazy interesting part of that. My favorite episode of that show must've been, I think it was part six or part seven, where I think it was, uh, was it, there's this guy that says got a light, right? Yes. Uh, part eight. Oh, and I wonder, what does that have to do with the entire you know, season as it progressed? I mean, it was taken a very different time and different place and different people. Yeah, yeah. That was um, one of the most surprising moments in TV uh, is when they, I mean, the episode starts out like a normal episode, like following the story, Mr. C, and I think he's in the truck with Ray and Ray tries to kill him. And then it's just like, cuts and flashes back 80 years earlier <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. with the, uh, the atom bomb explosion uh, at, in white Plains, New Mexico. Um, the connection, I mean, there's, it, it almost felt like Lynch was like, okay, I want to take a minute to do like a little abstract origin story to kind of explain without explaining, because he doesn't like to explain stuff and I don't blame him. Um, but kind of explain like how this evil started seeping into the world and where the Black Lodge came from and how these characters, uh, these sort of White Lodge spiritual characters like the giant, um, how they figure into everything. I thought it was really cool. Uh, and that got a light guy, uh, the woodsman. There's so many theories. Have you read some of the theories on the internet about where these woodsmen came from? I have not, but uh, do share with me some. So from what I understand... I- and I can't remember because I, I read Mark Frost's books, okay. the final, the final dossier and uh, the secret history of Twin Peaks. And I think he explains it a little bit, or he, he at least hints at it that, um, uh, well, uh, this wouldn't explain, it wouldn't go back that far uh, because the woodsmen were in the, in the forties in that flashback episode. Um, but the log lady, um, her husband died in a fire. He was a yeah. logger or something like that. And that's where her log came from. Uh, but oh, the, right. I, yeah. the idea, I think, was that these were coal miners or loggers or something like that that maybe died um, in some kind of accident, uh, you know, maybe related to the sawmill and all the, the lumber work that was happening in Twin Peaks. And that that had something to do with their nature because they're kind of evil, like they're kind of scary. Um, and of course, they appear 
in the the room above the convenience store and fire walk with me. I think that's kind of the theory behind it. Like, like, cause they appear in the convenience store in that episode and party, like in that weird time-lapse shot where they're yeah. all inside the store, you know, appearing and disappearing and all this stuff. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I, I can't make heads or tails of it, but it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. It's all, it's all coming back to me. I mean, yeah, I watched this show like a long time ago and I just remembered these too. things. And... Yeah. So back to Seinfeld. Who's your favorite Seinfeld side character? Side character is probably either Jackie Childs or Jay Peterman. <laughs> oh, because right. they're both such larger than life characters with really loud personalities. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a Tim Watley guy. Oh, I love Watley. A shtickle of fluoride. Yeah, I'm just a sadist with newer magazines. <laughs> Oh man, you can't you can't beat Brian Cranston. I, I mean, that was you saw hints of his later Breaking Bad Heisenberg character uh, in some of those scenes on Seinfeld. I think. Mm-hmm. So the music of uh, both shows. I know that the composer of Seinfeld, at least the theme song. I don't know if the entire music score was uh, Jonathan Wolf. Yes, Jonathan Wolf. Uh, and you had a conversation with him, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing as a fan, you would probably have geeked out a lot about it oh yeah i uh i I had a hard time staying professional in that in in uh the interview i did two interviews with jonathan uh one was for my other podcast i have a parenting podcast and i talked to him about fatherhood and being a dad he has like five kids and then yeah so i did that in 2020 and then last year i brought him back because uh last year warner brothers records released the Seinfeld soundtrack uh, on CD for the first time. Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about the music of Seinfeld. So yeah, he did the main theme, but also the individual cues for every episode. Uh, and he did them fresh for every episode too. They didn't just recycle music, which was really, really cool to think about that for 180 episodes. What trivia did he share with you that most surprised you? Oh man, let me think. Um, uh, my favorite was, well, this wasn't a trivia moment, but it was a uh, talking about the Jerry pilot. So in season four of Seinfeld, of course, Jerry and George get hired by NBC to write a pilot and Mm -hmm. they fully produce it. Like you see the whole thing and you hear like the really cheesy music. Uh, The theme music for that fake pilot is nothing like the music of Seinfeld. And I talked to Jonathan about that, you know, like, where did that come from? He said, well, I just talked to one of the writers, Larry Charles, who said, you know, we're going to need some theme music for the show. Just make something up, make something cheesy and schlocky and, you know, typical cliche nineties theme music. And what was cool is that Jonathan Wolf, I mean, he had done a lot of other shows. So he kind of, he didn't borrow from any of those shows, but like he knew how to write like a more by the numbers kind of uh, theme yeah. music. And um, I asked him, I was like, well, it kind of sounds lyrical. Did you ever have lyrics for the, for the theme music? He said, no, but then he just made them up on the spot uh, during our interview. He like did a little improvised singing session along to the music. So that was a lot of fun. Wow. My favorite Seinfeld music moment, aside from, aside from obviously the, the, the bass theme, is yeah. the musical cues used in the episode Bizarro Jerry. Yes. Where Elaine meets the Bizarro counterparts of uh, yep. her buddies, Jerry, George, and Kramer. And there are these musical cues uh, when the exterior is like the Bizarro apartment. And I love the Bizarro apartment's like interior design, which is like complete reverse, the exact opposite of, uh, of Jerry's apartment. Yeah. And it, it has this like really like wonky uh, sort of like baseline. And I, I just, it's just fantastic. Yeah. And it almost sounds a little like it's playing backwards. Oh, yeah. With the, the percussion behind it. I think he did kind of do a little back masking. I mean, genius stuff. I mean, every episode had fantastic music. Um, 
and he knew even like when they changed their setting and went to another setting uh, to change the music. Like when um, they did the episode, The Betrayal, when Elaine is invited to Sue Allen's wedding in India, um, he did a more traditional Indian music kind of influence theme with sitars right. and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, you know, when they did fake movies on Seinfeld, he would write the scores for those movies and, you know, borrow from like, I don't know, Hans Zimmer and uh, James Horner and, you know, Williams, John Williams, and all these great composers. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I watched the film Memento a few years back and I was really yes. like, I was really amazed by it. But then yeah. I found out that there's that episode, The Betrayal, that basically beat him to it. You know, they, yeah, they, definitely. Uh, yeah. Of, like invented the concept firsthand. Yeah. And I think The Betrayal was based on a play uh, of the same name. And I, I, oh, I, really? I haven't seen it. Uh, I know that the writer David Mandel um, has talked about that, uh, about that play. Um, but I don't know if it has a backward structure like that. Um, I mean, of course, Tarantino had been doing that for 10 years at that point, um, you know, telling stories out of order. But uh, yeah, definitely. It does have a memento feel to it, which is funny because I think Christopher Nolan, who directed Memento, like owes a lot of his a lot of his prestige to the work of David Lynch, who I think influenced him a lot. There we go. So Angelo Battle of Menti is like, I think he's the reason why I started seeking out music scores, uh -huh. you know, mainly because of his work in Twin Peaks. And it goes so well with the, the, the show as a whole, because my first impression of it is that, well, yes, it's a murder mystery, but it has elements of uh, soap opera and the supernatural. Mm -hmm. It's comedic, dramatic, eerie, thrilling, and in some cases, horrifying. Yep. And Balamenti's music is like a this eclectic mix of sounds and music that I didn't think was fitting before. Like he would do jazz and yep. dream pop and mm -hmm. even sometimes really whimsical tunes like uh, the Audrey's dance theme. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, that's a crazy one. Yeah. So, um, what's your favorite uh, Balamenti score besides from the Twin Peaks one? It's hard to say. Uh, I mean, I loved his work in Blue Velvet. I'm trying to recall what all he had done with Lynch because there were a couple of Lynch's films that he did not use Badalamenti on. Lost Highway, he was not uh, involved. Oh, right. Mulholland Drive, I think he did the music for and was incredible. Uh, and and I mean, this is not my favorite work of his, but fun fact, uh, Angelo Badalamenti did the music for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, the wow. great 80s comedy with Chevy Chase. Mm -hmm. But I would say outside of Twin Peaks, probably Mulholland Drive. Yeah, uh, another crazy musical fact that I found is, have you watched this film with Vanilla Ice called Coolest Ice? <laughs> I have not, but I'm aware of it. So um, apparently the DP, uh, director of photography for that movie, he went on to do a series of films for Steven Spielberg, including Schindler's List. No kidding. His name is Janusz Kaminski. He's Polish. Wow. So. I did not know that. That's that's hilarious. Um, I thought you were going to say that it was Peter Deming, uh, who is a frequent collaborator of Lynch's, um, who did Lost Highway, a lot of Twin Peaks, maybe all of Twin Peaks. I'm not sure. Um, but he also did uh, Austin Powers, um, at least the first Austin Powers film, the same year that he did Lost Highway. So he's, he's another one of those directors of photography that can really jump genres and uh, do whatever he wants. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of Deming as well. Yeah. So uh, in Twin Peaks, there's this location called the Roadhouse, which is a bar. Yes. And in the pilot episode, we see uh, Julie Cruz mm -hmm. performing a lyrical version of the Twin Peaks theme. Yep. But in 
in the return there it features like a slew of like artists of uh, many many different genres performing uh, i know that uh trent resner and atticus ross did it yep and so did chromatics mm-hmm. and eddie vetter oh right yeah which i didn't realize that was him for the first time because he um the the host uh jr star introduces him as um edward lewis severson which is i think his birth name and i wow. didn't know that i didn't recognize him for some reason i mean once you know that it's eddie vetter you can and you hear his voice you know that it's him but i was like oh oh my god that's eddie vetter <laughs> i know that uh julie cruz herself uh reprised that yeah the theme and i think yep. it was towards it was towards the end of the part 17 the, yeah yeah yep, the last one it was i think it was oh god and it was so impactful because it was after cooper had somehow managed to go back in time through the basement oh, yeah. and uh thought he saved laura and then she ends up being snapped up and, you know, snatched away by Judy or whatever and disappears. And then it like fades to the roadhouse and Julie Cruz singing. It was, uh, oh man, that was a moment for me emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I know that the two musicians who starred in Fire Walk with me are Chris Isaac. Yes. Of that uh, song Wicked Games and David Bowie, whose character uh, was returned in the return, but as a boiling kettle. Yeah, voiced by someone else, unfortunately, due to uh, Bowie's death. I think the year before they started filming that. I wonder uh, what's what's your what's your take on that character, uh, Philip Jeffries? I, he oh. appeared in one scene, and and then he appeared as the kettle. So right. what's up with that? Okay, so really, really difficult to say, um, but I think that Philip Jeffries came closer to figuring out like what was going on oh. than anyone else on that show. And I think that's why he got sucked up into that world. You know, he appears uh, at the FBI field office in Philadelphia and fire walk with me and then disappears again. Um, there are deleted scenes that appear in the missing pieces that actually show him uh, in Argentina at the hotel. And he like, he walks up to the front desk and he asks to see a young lady named Judy. Uh, and they say that like, she's here, she's waiting right. for you, something like that. Um, and then there's another scene where he like suddenly appears in front of like a giant burned spot on the wall. Like he's been through a very painful journey somehow to wind up back in Argentina. And then of course he appears again in the return as the kettle. And then there's that scene where Mr. C is like trying to talk to him, like mm-hmm. on the phone, that weird phone computer thing that he has. And he's yeah. like, is it Philip Jeffries? Is that you? Which theory uh just conspiracy theory of mine i think the person he was talking to was actually sarah palmer and i have reasons for that but uh i I won't get into that right now but yeah i think that uh the same thing that happened to uh chris isaac's character chet desmond i think that he starts to uncover what's going on with like the black lodge and all this uh negative energy that's seeping into the world and um gets sucked up by it and consumed by it and uh winds up stuck in that world. And I think maybe the kettle is like the only way that he's able to get out of it. I mean, in the same way that like Dale Cooper drops through the floor of the black lodge and winds up back in the real world in the body of Ducky Jones, or maybe it's his body. I don't, I don't know exactly how that worked because I know that the real Ducky then got transported to the black lodge. So I I don't know exactly (laughs) how that worked, but I think that's kind of what happened. I think the black lodge it takes a person in and then spits them back out in a totally different form. Yeah. And I think honestly, Lynch is so influenced by 
certain aspects of like Buddhist mythology. And he kind of wears that on his sleeve. Like, you know, even like Dale Cooper being obsessed with Tibet and the Tibetan book of the dead and Tibetan Buddhism and things like that. Um, I think that he's like, he's drawing parallels to certain aspects of life cycles and um, karma and and things like that. Um, Stuff that I, I don't know, understand well enough to speak to, but I think that that's kind of what he's trying to get at is that these people are going through these karmic journeys and sometimes for, for the better, sometimes for the worse. And that's just, that happens to be what happens to Philip Jeffries. Uh, for some reason, he winds up coming back as a trapped in this weird machine. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if uh, you've watched uh, David Lynch's Masterclass. I have not. Uh, he did a, a Masterclass series and mm-hmm. I, I watch it and I remember distinctively liking it. He he talked about his experiences making these movies and doing these artworks and composing sounds. And uh, one of the stories that I was impressed by was how he managed to bring back uh, Dennis Hopper from basically career hell. And yeah, oh boy. And when I saw, I mean, Hopper's character in Blue Velvet was just just a manifestation of evil. Oh my God. Amazing, amazing performance. I mean, you know, how how uncomfortable you are watching his character is a testament to how great of a job he did bringing that like evil soul to life. Mm-hmm. And I have my speculations, but if it's confirmed, I would uh, I have no doubt that the character was based on Dennis Hopper's you know himself. I mean his the troubles that he he was in and all of the weird vices that he he has got himself involved in, and it's. I'm sure a lot of that came through. It, it, if it wasn't in the writing, it was probably one of those things that probably came through in the process. I think Lynch is one of those directors that's kind of intuitive and kind of just lets the process happen. So, you know, it, it may have been that once he cast Dennis Hopper, because I know he really wanted to get Dennis Hopper from what I remember, and it was maybe difficult to get him. And, you know, they probably worked together on creating Frank Booth yeah. and probably drawing oh, right. all of those experiences. And I, I think the same thing probably happened with Robert Blake in... Uh, yeah. Uh, Lost Highway. Um, I, I don't know how much of that Lynch was involved in because, of course, Robert Blake plays the mystery man, this like really creepy, mysterious, violent figure. And mm-hmm. Robert Blake would then go on yeah. to murder his wife. And, real life. Um, so, yeah. uh, and of course, Lost Highway was based so much on the O.J. Simpson case, right. from what I've heard Lynch say. Um, so yeah, he definitely likes to work in elements of the real world in his films. Oh yeah, there's that uh, schizophrenic jazz playing scene. Yes, bringing back memories and it's uh, just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. So, um, which uh, of the two shows will, or do you think is more influential? More influential um, on me, or just like on the world? Well, on you and in general. Gotcha. Uh, I mean, I think it's really difficult to say because Twin Peaks is one of those shows that if you were to take a poll. Uh, of just a random room of a thousand people, maybe 25 to 50 of them would say that they've watched, uh, actively watched Twin Peaks. And the rest of them would say, yeah, I've heard of it. But it's one of those shows that influenced filmmakers and television creators. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, widespread. It really changed television the way that it did things. Um, Influenced everything from like the X-Files to Lost to, um, I mean, Fringe, so many of these like mystery shows, uh, Joss Whedon's television stuff, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Charmed, you know, all of these like supernatural shows that weren't really coming up 
uh, before Twin Peaks, like definitely came up afterwards. And I mean, the film world, I mean, everything from, like I mentioned, Christopher Nolan, um, I mean, even Star Wars, the last second to last one, the last Last Jedi, I think that was the one, had some like major Lynch undertones in a couple of scenes. Um, so definitely influential in terms of creative world of Hollywood, but maybe not as well known outside of that. Um, Seinfeld, I think, is influential in worldwide pop culture uh, in the years since. I mean, not just the things we talk about and the things we're comfortable talking about in mixed company. One example of that being the episode where Elaine discusses uh, birth control and having yeah. um, a diaphragm with the guys. Um, and that was something that was not seen on TV before that. Uh, so they kind of broke barriers like that. But like terminology, you know, we say things like yada, yada, yada now. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You got to see the baby, maybe the dingo <laughs> ate your baby. All of these <laughs> phrases that are just completely infiltrated into uh, pop culture these days and just the words that we use. Um, sometimes not even realizing that they came from Seinfeld or were popularized by Seinfeld. So I think that it was, it was a pop culture event that, I mean, people smarter than me have written, I'm sure, dissertations on the phenomenon of Seinfeld and the way that it changed the way we talk, uh, at least in the United States where it was so popular, um, but uh, certainly probably other parts of the world too. So I think probably that's, that's how I would break that down. Like Twin Peaks, definitely more influential in how film and television is created. Seinfeld just on everybody. Yeah, culturally. I think my personal take on it, and again, I couldn't have put it better myself, what you've said, is that I think there will be there will be shows like Seinfeld. I think Louis by Louis C.K. is one example, but I don't think there will ever be a show like Twin Peaks, even though other shows uh, are influenced by or even try to copy the show. Yeah. There will never be a show like Twin Peaks. Yeah, fully agree. So let's uh, talk about your podcast, The Other Side of Darkness. Sure. An episodic Seinfeld parody inspired by David Lynch. Of course, that the title itself is a Seinfeld reference. It's based on a fictional movie in which uh, a woman uh, goes into a coma and then yeah. wakes up yeah. in the first 30 minutes of the movie, apparently, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, something like that. It's uh, that episode where Kramer, I think, He's afraid that he's going to go into a coma and like, I don't have a living will. And it, he, he like starts freaking out after he watches the movie. Um, yeah, that's where that came from. Yeah. So um, yeah, about that podcast. So uh, how was it uh, established and what do you do other than interviewing the uh, music guy for Seinfeld and uh, the Twin Peaks guest star Sarah Paxton? Sure. Yeah. So that came about... Um, during lockdown, during the first lockdown here in the United States, um, I was in a cabin with my family. We were taking a little vacation on a lake. Uh, we'd rented a lake house. And late one night, I was up on my phone and I just started writing. I was like, hey, what if Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up, what if there was one that was written by David Lynch? What would that sound like? <laughs> and so I just wrote out like a Lynchian stand-up set, which um, wound up being the first scene of the podcast. Um, and I posted, like I screenshotted it on my Google Docs app and posted it on my Instagram story and people started replying to it. Like, this is, this is great. Let's see more. Let's see a full episode kind of thing. And so I just started writing like scene after scene of a David Lynch story in the Seinfeld world. And almost every day I would write a scene, I would post it, people would comment on it. Uh, and I started weaving the story Ooh. and it took about six months to finish. And so by December of 2020, I had finished the story. 
more or less, because it wasn't really finished. I went back and did a lot more and I'm still doing a lot more. But once I finished it, people started saying, okay, well, let's, let's hear like a table read version of this. Let's hear what it would sound like. And some people started saying, you know, I could do a, a good Jerry impression. Like, you know, let's bring this to life. And, um, I wound up casting actors. Uh, I did a Kickstarter budget because I don't have enough money to pay people to do this. And I didn't want to ask people to do it for free and wound up like hiring musicians to write music for it. And, um, now it's going to probably be like a 10 episode series in 30 minute installments, um, following this weird David Lynch-ish story, uh, Lynch-ish, Lynchian, I guess is the correct term with Jerry George, Elaine and Kramer. Um, and yeah, yeah. So I wrote that, um, recording it, editing it now. And to kind of fill time between episodes, I've been interviewing anyone I can get my hands on. Mostly it's been actors who have appeared on Seinfeld and sometimes actors who have appeared on Twin Peaks. I, I spoke to Sarah Paxson, you mentioned, uh, who was in part four of The Return. Um, I got to talk to Alicia Witt, who played um, Gerson Hayward in the original series and The Return. And uh, one actor, John... Apicella, who played Evelyn's husband on Sein uh, Twin Peaks, but he also played a repairman on Seinfeld. He was one of the 13 oh. actors who appeared in both shows. So I got to have a really cool okay. conversation with him. And fun fact, he actually shot a scene in uh, Lost Highway. Uh, oh. He told me about this. Um, it's a deleted scene and there have never, the deleted scenes for that movie have never been released, but he played, I think, a chaplain um, at the prison where Bill Pullman's character was, I think, going to go to the electric chair or something like that before he has that like psychotic break and right, um, yeah. becomes Balthazar Getty's character. But yeah, he shot a scene. David Lynch called him like six months later to invite him to the premiere and said, by the way, I'm sorry, I had to cut your scene. Um, maybe we'll put it on a DVD one day. And oh, it just okay. never surfaced. So I'm hoping to find that one day. There we go. So, um, so you've uh, recorded the story of the other side of darkness. So when do you think it will be uh, released? Um, well, part one is out. I released part one back in December. Um, okay. And part two, I'm putting the finishing touches on. I'm hoping to have it out in the next two weeks. I'm just waiting on a couple, uh, a couple more lines to be recorded. Um, and so that's what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm writing, recording, editing, releasing, uh, because I didn't want to have to sit on this thing. And it's so big. I thought I was going to be able to do it all at once, but I'm, I'm just not. It's a lot. And uh, I also have a full-time job and a family and stuff. So I'm having to like kind of parse my time out. Um, but I've got seven more episodes as it currently stands, as the, the way I've currently broken it down. Because when I finished writing it, it was like 180 pages, which in the film world would be a three-hour long film. But as I started breaking it up into episodes, I realized, well, you can't just end it right there at that scene because that doesn't work well as a standalone episode is a good story. So I would write more scenes and move some scenes around. And um, it has just gotten longer and longer as a result, which is fine, I think, because I'm able to like write scenes with characters that didn't appear in it originally. Um, like uh, I've got a scene coming up in the next episode uh, between Newman and um, the character Fred Yerkes, who appeared, he only appeared in one episode of Seinfeld. He was played by Fred Stoller, who's a TV writer uh, who wrote on Seinfeld as well, and has appeared in so many other films and TV shows. He's a classic uh, comedian. He did, he did a lot of work, I think on Norm Macdonald's podcast before Norm Macdonald died. Um, mm -hmm. but anyway, so yeah, I'm still working on it. I'm hoping to have the next episode out in the next few weeks. And I'm thinking that at the rate, at the pace that this is going now, it's going to be like another six months before the whole story comes out. So it'll all come out this year, most likely, but it'll be like throughout the year. All right. That'll be exciting. Uh, I'll remind myself to, uh, catch up on the whole thing. 
and also I really look forward to how you do the music of the show because it's an it's an audio podcast, so the music is yes pretty much integral to the show's production. Absolutely, it is because it has to. My goal for this whole thing was to have it feel like you're listening to a real episode of Seinfeld that slowly becomes a David Lynch film. But in order for that to work, it's got to have music. And I've actually been lucky enough to contact several really talented composers that have been willing to work for like pennies, basically, because my budget is so small to produce some amazing music for this stuff. Uh, If you go back and listen to part one, there's some theme music playing under this, the first scene, which is Jerry doing standup. And it really sounds like, I mean, he took like one of Bottle of Menti's scores and re-recorded it uh, and like completely interpolated and reconstituted it with like the slap bass and the percussion and the snaps and the mouth pops and <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And it's it's very impressive, the the work that uh, this guy, uh, Cody McCory, and just a load of other very talented musicians have, uh, have done to contribute to this thing. All right. So I have one last question for you, and that is, could you end this show the same way that you would end a Seinfeld and or Twin Peaks episode? This show, meaning the the series that I'm writing? No, this uh, interview that we're doing. How, how, how would you end it? How would I end it? Oh, let's see. Okay, so if this were an episode of Seinfeld, um, because I relate most heavily to George, and if George were being interviewed for a podcast, I think what would have been happening throughout this interview is that I would be taking offense to little things that you have said that were meant to be compliments, but I would take them as insults and I would get angrier and angrier. And I would end the episode by unleashing on you in some kind of monologue, like how dare you insult me, all this stuff. And then realize that you were complimenting me and totally embarrass myself. And like, I don't know, trip on my way out the door. So that's how I would end this. If this were Seinfeld, if this were an episode of twin peaks, I would be hearing like an, a weird ambient electrical sound throughout this interview that slowly grows louder and louder and our connection would kind of fizzle out uh, at times. And I would realize like at a certain point, the screen would go dark and then somehow we would switch bodies and I would be in Vietnam and you would be in the United States. And I then have to navigate this world where I'm this totally other person. And um, I would just end it lost and confused and scared and uh, mind blown. So that's probably how this would end. Well, spoken like a true fan. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesse Brooks, for being on this uh, program. I wish you all the best. And I'll let you know what I think about the show so far, The Other Side of Darkness. Uh, uh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was a really fun conversation. I had a great time. Yeah. And just to speak to the interview itself, um, you do great work as an interview host. It's not a, it's not an easy job. I can tell you because I've done it a lot. And I remember because I listened to an episode of your podcast this morning. So oh, really? You're, you're only 18. Is that right? Uh, I was born in 99. So that make me uh, 22. Oh, you're 20. Oh, I must have listened to a really old episode then because you've been doing this for a while. I started the show when I was uh, 20-ish. So, uh, oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, I mean, still, that's very young to be hosting a podcast and pulling in guests and uh, constructing something like this uh, on a regular basis. So kudos to you for, uh, for doing this and finding something exciting for you and, and learning how to be good at it. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I did start at the podcast uh, during the COVID lockdown. It started out as a show where I talk about music. Uh, so I, I got a a volunteer gig uh, doing radio for my local radio station when I was studying in Canada. I mm-hmm. so the pitch of the show was I talked I would talk about music that I like, mostly popular. 
so I would focus on an album, say Bob Dylan, and I was I would riff on how that album impacted me and how I first got to it, and I would play sort of several tracks of the album. But ever since the lockdown, I pivoted into doing podcasts. I did start out doing the monologue thing, and then I would find musicians and later on、um, people who I find interesting, and of course I include you as one of them. So it has taken the form as it is now. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And、uh, if you ever want to have a music chat, I would love to talk about some of my favorite albums.、Uh, I'm a big classic rock guy. You mentioned Bob Dylan. I'm a really big Bob Dylan fan. So I could talk for hours about the Beatles or Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin. So I'm an open book there. That would be wonderful. Awesome, Jesse. Thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Chung for bringing me on his podcast. You can find Musically Speaking anywhere you get your podcasts, and I've included some links in this episode's show notes. This week's featured artist is Gloom, a Los Angeles-based musician inspired by Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, Ginger Rogers, and Audrey Hepburn. Her debut album, The Internet, was released in 2021 and produced by Johnny Jewel. From that album, here's Gloom with tonight's featured track, Nervous Breakdown.
Music by Patrick Edwards, Ivor Bowitz, and Robert McDonald. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a positive rating and review on your podcasting app. You can follow Sign Peaks on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, and we've also got a Facebook group you can join. Just search Sign Peaks, two words, on Facebook. And you can also visit our store at signpeaks.threadless.com for merchandise. And if you'd like to support this series, you can visit patreon.com signpeaks to get early access to episodes and exclusive merchandise. All links mentioned can be found in this episode's show notes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, you might also enjoy watching Owen Wilson, the first podcast dedicated entirely to everyone's favorite catchphrase-loving comedic actor. Hosts Jake Menez and Michael J. Teeter make their way through Owen Wilson's entire filmography, rating each movie, counting each wow, and bringing in guests in an effort to befriend Owen Wilson himself. Find Watching Owen Wilson on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and at watercooler.com. You can also listen to Mike Dowd, the voice of Kramer on this podcast, on his own podcast, Welcome to Twin Speaks. Here's Mike and co-host Janine with more. Hi, I'm Mike. And hello, I'm Janine. And this is Welcome to Twin Speaks. We are a bi-weekly podcast exploring the weird and wonderful world of David Lynch's master hit TV series, Twin Peaks. We will be going episode by episode really discussing the legacy of Twin Peaks that it's left for television and pop culture that maybe you've never heard before. And if you're someone like me, who's actually seeing it for the very first time, um, I welcome you to dive in with me with no spoilers as we go along and I avoid all the Google researching in what's to come with fresh eyes and fresh ears and bask in the wonderfully weird yes and if you've seen the show before you can see it through the first time through janine's eyes it'll be like it'll be like you're watching twin peaks for the first time so grab a cup of joe grab some donuts and some cherry pie and join us on spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and welcome to twin speaks The Other Side of Darkness is written, performed, and produced strictly as a work of parody. The Other Side of Darkness is not endorsed by Castle Rock Entertainment, Sony Pictures, NBC, Warner Brothers Records, Rhino Records, Lynch Frost Productions, Twin Peaks Productions, CBS, or Showtime. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Seinfeld, the Seinfeld logo, and all Seinfeld characters, story elements, and intellectual property are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders. The makers of The Other Side of Darkness make no claims directly or indirectly of ownership to any elements held by these trademark and or copyright holders other than original characters, story elements, and other intellectual properties created specifically by the makers of this podcast. Musical elements referencing themes and motifs from the original theme music to Seinfeld and Twin Peaks are created expressly as works of parody and do not imply claims to ownership of said music.